A reading from the prophet Isaiah. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, offspring of Abraham, whom I love, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I chose you and didn't reject you. Don't fear, because I am with you. Don't be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will surely help you. I will hold you with my righteous, strong hand. All who rage against you will be shamed and disgraced. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will look for your opponents and won't find them. Those who fight you will be of no account and will die. I am the Lord your God, who grasps your strong hand, who says to you, don't fear, I will help you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I am the lead pastor here at Zao. It is so lovely to be with you this morning. I um, Pride weekend last weekend. Pride weekend is such a big weekend at Zao because we have so many queer and trans people because your pastors here are queer and trans. Um, and so we put out a lot of energy. Pride weekend, right? And most pastors take off a week after Holy Week because that's the biggest energy output of their year. And so Cameron and I, Cameron and I are married, for those of you who don't know, Cameron and I decided that we would take off the week after Pride Weekend, as that is our biggest output of energy throughout the year. And I hear that while we were gone, you all threw a huge party without us. Rude. Rude. No, I, I know that you didn't decide on the timing. I know that the timing was determined by uh, the protesters who chose to target um, our family event on Saturday, but it was incredible uh, being out of town and coordinating with all of you and our community partners and seeing just how many people, how many more people <laughs> came out to defend queer families and drag and holy spiritual places of imagination um, and gender bending and just good old-fashioned family-friendly love. Um, it was really incredible to, to not even be here to be able to support and to see just how strong this community is and how many people beyond those who identify with Zao, but people who just love Zao and love everything that this community stands for, to come out on our lawn, to make rainbow walls, to make signs, to play music, to chant, and just generally to cover this place and its people with protection and love. And meanwhile, there were people on the sidewalk or on the median shouting lies. Lies that we heard first in church. We're in a series right now called Lies I Heard in Church because there are some things, some falsehoods that too many of us have been taught, too many of us have heard spoken to us or our loved ones in church. And the one that we had set to tackle today, thank you very much, was 
the lie, being gay is wrong, or in a slightly more triggering version, homosexuality is a sin. How many of y'all have been hurt by this lie? It's an evil one. It's an evil one. And for those of you who came out to this community yesterday to defend this community against that lie, thank you so much. For those of you who were harmed by that lie, even by hearing it again yesterday or seeing that this community was going to be attacked with it, I'm so sorry. And that, that cruel twist of God's intention, that cruel misunderstanding of the nature of love and God's love for us is what we're going to unpack here today. So this lie that you've heard before, homosexuality is a sin. Most people want to unpack that at some level because they know in their gut that it's wrong. But there are so many people who are willing to either stand at the median or sit around the dinner table or send you passive aggressive emails or disinvite you from family functions that it would be really great to be able to convince and to get into it with. They come so prepared, right? They seem to have all the answers. They seem to have all their ducks in a row. And it would be really great if we could just get our ducks in a row and disprove them, prove them wrong with an argument. And so lots of people come to me asking, like, how do I get an airtight scripture argument for the fact that God made people gay on purpose? And like, I, yeah, I think you can get that. I mean, like, to the extent that any argument about the Bible is airtight. Sure. So that's one way to go about it, is to go through these verses that people tend to hurl at you. We affectionately call them the clobber verses, because that's really all they're used for these days, is clobbering people. So you can go through the clobber verses. Some people say there's five, some seven. We'll talk about six today. You can go through the clobber verses, verse by verse, unpacking the nuance and having an argument about it. But I also think that when people come to me with that, I'm like, yeah, you can do that. And I think it might be time actually for you to level up your relationship with the scripture and to understand the scripture in a fundamentally different way to reorient what you think the scripture is and what it's for and how it informs your faith. But that one's a bigger, weightier one, so let's start with one, because that's what everybody wants, right? Is what do I tell the haters? So, first of all, if you want a literal cheat sheet, you can get those. The internet is full of them. There's so many books on this. I'm going to talk about this one. It's called Unclobber. There are five more books on the back welcome table if you want to check out any of them. The half a dozen books that I brought down my, from my office about this topic were just the ones that were easy to find. I swear from my lived experience, I, it, you could convince me that 13% of the internet is just debunking this stupid lie. There are so many resources out there. So I want you to know this is not fringe. I want you to know I'm not making this up. There are lots of incredible people, scholars who have dedicated their lives to unpacking this harm and setting people straight on the historical and biblical context about it. So this book, Unclobber, I like it because it's pretty um, straightforward, it's easy to understand, and because he provides literal cheat sheets. So if you want a cheat sheet on the six clobber verses 
unpacked in the book Unclobber, you can go to unclobber.com and get a free PDF download. You just, you just slide that right onto the Thanksgiving table and walk away. <laughs> but we can go through that just real quickly here. So the story that people like to shove in our faces is Sodom and Gomorrah. How many people have like an icky feeling in their body when I say Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, me too. It's an icky story. Like, it's horrible. And it's one of the first piece of, pieces of evidence that people are not reading the scriptures in good faith when they're coming um, back to queerness and, and gay relationship uh, or what they would characterize as homosexuality when they're reading these scriptures. Because when we understand orientation, and when we talk about love and loving relationship, we're talking about a sexuality that is a part of a, a deep and, and loving kind of relationship, a life that is complicated and has many parts. But this story is about assault. This story is actually about rape. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a, a story about outsiders in coming into a town and people out of uh, fear and malice, a culture of dominance, choosing to physically and sexually assault them. And just because all of the characters involved are men, bad faith readers say, well, that's homosexuality. Uh, excuse? Like, no. That is, not, that is not what anyone's sexuality is about. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a horrific story of the way that people abuse power, that people use their bodies to dominate one another and torture one another. There's nothing loving, there's nothing even particularly sexual about it other than it is a sexual exploitation, a sexual domination. These are acts of war that are condemned. And so for Sodom and Gomorrah, that story is about assault, abuse of power, and domination. It has nothing to do with gayness. Now, we'll move on to Leviticus 18 and 19. These are in the part of the purity code. This is a very culturally contextual understanding uh, of the law, and it's about separating one people from another. Some of you may be familiar with the fact that this is a similar path, like in this line of laws is also like, don't get tattoos, don't eat shellfish, don't wear mixed fibers. And we're really good with being able to identify that those were things that made the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, set apart from their peers in that time, right? We're like, oh, right, because the neighbors who they didn't like wore, you know, wore mixed fibers or like ate shellfish and they're like, ooh, don't be like those guys. <laughs> and that's truly what it was. That's truly what it was. It was about saying, hey, these are the boundaries around which we identify ourselves as a culture. And some of, of that sex that is condemned, that is characterized as not of God and not of the people of God, is also specific to um, temple and cult worship practices. Many people in that time and place in the ancient world would express their faith by going to a temple and having sex with the temple priests or priestesses. And so cultic worship, another religion was bound up in this. And so these passages say, 
You want to be in this religion? Don't do that religion. It's really, it's quite straightforward. We get into the New Testament and it feels a little bit murkier, right? This is, this is post-Jesus. This is the early church trying to figure out what it meant to be Christian. So you've got passages such as 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1. Now, these are more complicated, partly because the author is making up words, and uh, all words are made up. But if I make up a word right now, you might not have any context for knowing what I meant. And one of the words involved here is a word that just hadn't been used in any other context. So we're not really sure what it means. So we're already making some leaps to try and understand it. But in general, these passages are also referring to that cult sex practice. And in that context, a lot of sex actually in that culture was, again, exploitative. Those temple priests and priestesses, they didn't like grow up and say like, hey, I want to go to the temple and have sex for a living. They were often dedicated to the temple as children. And so were essentially offered up into sex slavery. You might imagine why a Christian ethic would say, hey, having sex with somebody who doesn't have an option to say no is wrong. And that was the context that these passages are talking about, these exploitative practices associated with other cultures and religions. And then we get to a lot of people's kind of big one, Romans. First chapter of Romans, again, is concerned with power. Now, in that time and place, There's Roman culture, there's Greek culture, and there's Jewish culture, and they all have different sets of rules and expectations and cultures around sex. But one of the things that was really common was this kind of outlining of power and honor and status. Hierarchy was a huge part of those cultures. It's actually one of the things that you see Jesus constantly trying to undermine by saying like, hey, we're all siblings. Hey, you're in my family, I'm in your family. Like, it's not about this anymore. But those cultures all had pretty rigid um, expectations around power and status and honor. Sex in that culture was considered an act engaging in some of those dynamics of power. And penetration specifically denoted dominance. And so it was against honor and against culture and against essentially a caste system for someone with lesser honor to be the penetrator, for instance, or someone with more honor to be penetrated. Now, I apologize for getting so graphic on a Sunday morning, but these are the details that matter when we're talking about sex and what sex is holy and what sex is abusive. And so all of these standards around it were swirling in this context and culture. And a lot of the acts that have been conflated with queerness as an orientation, as an identity, a lot of the acts in the Bible that have been conflated with loving adult consensual relationships are actually these predatory relationships where it was okay in Roman culture for an adult man 
to penetrate a boy because the boy had lower honor, right? So like when, when Paul is unpacking this again, it's saying, hey, power and dominance, these things are not, we cannot be throwing these things around. And Paul is making a point about how when we, when we look at another culture, and we see all of these things going on, the things that we have to be on the lookout for are exploitation. The things that we have to be looking out for are abuses of power. And it is one of the devil's favorite things to take an idea and flip it on its head. To take an idea that's about protecting the vulnerable and to use it to actually hurt the most vulnerable. And that is what's happened in our culture now. Texts that were intended to protect vulnerable people have actually been weaponized against now vulnerable queer adults. And nobody is really paying enough attention to the ways within church and religious structures, which is what Paul is calling out, children are still being abused by adults, right? It is a way to divert attention from the true evils that are happening and to put this on the other, whatever other can be expressed. Now, notably, <laughs> Romans is a really complicated text. It's also actually Paul making a huge point to the Jewish Christians that they aren't better than the Gentile Christians. And if that doesn't make any sense, it's because you have no context for it, which means that you're missing a lot of information about what that whole passage is for. The Jewish Christians had been exiled from Rome for a while because they kept rioting, which I think is great. Like, there's a historical document that's sort of like, ah, we've got to kick all these Jewish Christians out of Rome because they keep rioting in the name of Christ or whatever. And so the Jews were exiled from Rome for a while. And when they came back, the house churches were being run by Gentile Christians. And so the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians had to figure out how to be together again. And part of what was happening was the Jewish Christians were like, yeah, we're better than you. God picked us first. And Paul is making this like very complicated rhetorical case about why like that's why like, yes, God picked you. It's amazing. And God also picked literally everyone. So get on board. That's what, that's what Romans is about. And like with that context, we have to understand that like Paul is trying to, this is like, it's not like a throwaway. Nothing Paul writes is a throwaway. But it's, it's something that Paul is writing in service of a much different point. And so for us to isolate it and say, well, it's obviously about, you know, this gay wedding over here that wants a cake. Like we're, we're like way missing the point. We're super missing the point. And notably, when we look at other things that Paul has written, including about this, including about the relationship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, we have Galatians, which he wrote presumably first, in which he says there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male and female. And so Paul is saying, hey, all of these identities that we've got, they're really earthly, and like that's our context and that's okay, and you bring that to the community, and that's cool. But like underneath and through all of that, there is a continuity here. And we are required to see Christ in one another and be in relationship, even if we don't really get it. And, and we may have to undermine some of these categories. 
we may have to deal with slavery because in Christ, that's not a thing. We may have to deal with these divisions of Jewish versus Gentile because in Christ, that's not a thing. And you know what? Male and female, that's not a thing either. And what's interesting there is that, um, is that middle word because we always translate it, we often translate it, neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male and female. And some scholars have pointed out that this is really interesting, given the fact that like male and female is the framework we have from Genesis. God made them male and female with the, the implication that man and woman should be together in marriage. But Paul himself was kind of a sexual minority in his community because he refused to ever marry. And he's like, you know what? Maybe that's not a thing either, male and female. Maybe there's more to it than that. And we need to do away with our cultural expectations of male and female. We need to do away with our cultural expectations of what those gender roles mean and what kind of honor and dominance and power hierarchies are built all up into that. And so that Romans text, it's complicated. It's got a lot of other history, and I do not believe that it says what the haters say it says. Now, one of the things I appreciate about Colby Martin, the author of Unclobber, is that he encourages folks to look at these texts and say, like, well, that's a specific instance, and these are particular acts. All of these things are super exploitative. We're, like, not on board with all of this. And he's like, I just want you to, like, next time somebody asks you, is homosexuality sinful? I want you to ask them, is heterosexuality sinful? Because they will inevitably come to you with an answer of like, well, sometimes yes, and sometimes no. Right? Like, is straight people's sex a sin? Sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if we see patterns of dominance and exploitation and abuse. And other times, no, it's holy and good. And you know what? We see that throughout the scripture too. If we decided that we were just going to like collectively start clobbering straight people with all of the passages about sexual immorality that specifically implied sex between men and women, we'd have a lot more than six. But we don't do that because we understand context, right? We say, oh, that thing is abusive. This particular dynamic that's being called out is wrong. This is a kind of behavior that we don't stand for. And we don't globalize it to be about a person or a type of relationship. And that should be a red flag for us that this isn't a faithful reading of scripture because it's not how we apply all of the other texts that are about what is right and wrong in straight relationship and straight sexuality. So there are lots of books on this again, and I'm gonna stop with my <laughs> clobber um, run through here. Um, this book again is called Unclobber. There's five more on the table. There's a million more out there and they're great and you should read them. And like, also I just wanna share with you, I wanna confess to you personally, I'm, I'm so done reading them. I'm so over reading them. I've read some, I haven't read them all. New ones come out, they look great, I buy them, I don't open them. And like, <coughs> excuse me, I think like there's probably 
some privilege that I hold in the fact that like I was raised in a supportive family and I had messaging from early in my life that there was nothing um, <clears throat> that disqualified queer people from love or from leadership in the church. And so I just want to name that. And like, I'm so done. I'm so done getting in the weeds about this stuff because I so deeply know that condemning queerness is wrong. Like, I just, I know that in my being. I have blessed assurance on that front. And I want you to have it too. And we'll sort of get there about how. But I, I just want to also acknowledge that while I'm done, it's okay if you're not. It's okay if you're like, I want to know the arguments. I want to have the cheat sheet. I want to feel prepared when somebody comes at me about this. But I also want you to remember that like the people on the median yesterday were there because they were raised in a literal cult, right? Like most of the people, there were like 25 people there, most of them were the children of one man who have been brought to these kinds of protests since they were children. They were raised in a literal cult. And that's why they believe what they believe, and that's why arguing with them is not going to change their mind. And honestly, like, those kids have been raised in a cult to a much lesser degree. So was your homophobic uncle, or grandma, or childhood pastor. We've all been brought up in a queerphobic culture, and deprogramming that is really hard. And it's not actually always about arguments. And when we go to the Bible and we try and put the Bible in between us and the haters, and we say, look at this passage, no, look at this passage, we're not actually dealing with the wounds of relationship that are there. And it's a way of sort of outsourcing our pain and our difference and trying to hope that the Bible will solve it or intellect will solve it. But the Bible, I will remind you, is really, really complicated. I love the Bible so much. Last Last week, we started Lies I Learned in Church, or Lies I Heard in Church, with the idea that the Bible is clear, which is, again, something that a lot of those folks really want to stand on. The Bible is clear about this. No, it is not, sir. No, it is not. The Bible's not clear about many things. The Bible is complicated and beautiful and holy and good, but it is not clear. And, like, the Bible says a lot of stuff. I just want to bring you to the book of Job for a second. We're going to take a little aside to the book of Job. I love the book of Job. It's one of my favorites. Um, so the book of Job is about this guy whose life is going really badly. Like, really badly. Everything he loves, he has lost. It's a book about grief. It's a book about rage. It's a book about longing and confusion and doubt. And we see this incredible man, Job, this incredible person with a deep and abiding, loving relationship with God, screaming and wailing at God and saying, like, what the hell? Like, that's, if I could, it's a very long book, but if I could summarize, it's like, what the hell, God? It's great. I love this book. It's so permission-giving because it allows us to say, what the hell, God? And Job has friends, and Job's friends come in to talk to Job, and they're like, oh, Job, you really got to stop yelling at God, and Job's like, I will not yet stop yelling at God. I have more things to say, and they're like, oh, no, you probably should stop yelling at God because this is only happening because God's punishing you because you suck, 
And they have long, I mean, like, it's a long book. There's like 42 chapters in it. Job's friends have lengthy chapters where they're explaining to him all the bad things that are happening in your life are because you did something wrong. You brought this on yourself. And Job, defiantly, through 42 chapters, is like, Nuh-uh. I disagree. That that is not true. And God, you better come defend me against you or something. And so we see this exchange, this debate. At the very end, God shows up. And we want God to be like, this, I'll give you the answer, right? So God is sort of like, you don't understand anything. I've been around for a long time. You don't get it, but you guys are wrong. Job, keep it up. And that's really all we get. We don't get a lot of explanation. We don't get answers to most of Job's big questions. But we get a validation of Job's what the hell and a condemnation of the friends saying, you brought this on yourself. Now, I want you to think about that very complicated story. And then I want you to think about what it means when you see a single verse excerpted on an Instagram post. You could very easily take one of those verses from Job's friends and say, it's in the Bible. God says it's your fault. And that would be very confusing. For a lot of people who are trying to claim that the Bible is clear, it's because they're like, well, it would be bad if it were confusing, right? Well, the Bible is confusing. And actually, one of the ways we make it more confusing is by proof texting, is by taking things out of context and saying, this is exactly what it means. Because it's in the Bible, it must be true. Well, all of Job's friends, they get, their arguments get lengthy passages in the Bible. But that story goes out of its way to say this isn't true. Weirdly, in a way to complicate Romans even more for you, some people argue, scholars are arguing, that that passage that contains the clobber verse in Romans 1 actually isn't Paul's words. Not that like it got written later or whatever attributed to him. Paul likes to quote local philosophers. Paul likes to quote other people. And so there these scholars are saying like, hey, actually, like this is in a totally different like kind of cadence using different language. Uh, it seems really reasonable that Paul is actually arguing, is borrowing someone else's argument that he may or may not believe so that he can make this other point. And if that's confusing, welcome to the Bible. <laughs> Context matters and we don't always have all of it. And I know that that can be deeply unsettling. But this idea that because it's in the Bible, it's true, doesn't actually stand, even if you read the Bible on its own face. The Bible argues and disagrees with itself. The Bible holds space for debate. The Bible gives us these incredible stories. Like, you know, you've got, you've got Jesus coming onto the scene and saying, like, You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've got Jesus healing people on the Sabbath against the law and then telling people, well, the law is for you. You're not made for the law. 
That's why I'm breaking it. You've got Jesus getting so annoyed with the religious leaders for tithing one-tenth of their spices, but then neglecting the basic decency of relationship. So in the figure of Jesus, we have someone over and over again challenging the teachings, challenging their interpretation, and challenging their very foundations. And saying, like, this is, this is my example. Be like Christ. Make claims disagree with one another, be in community in a way that allows you to challenge harmful teachings and harmful instructions, harmful interpretations. Our beliefs need to be about more than the words on the page. Our belief needs to be stronger than the capital T truth of scripture. Because by trying to make scripture true in our narrow human way, we've actually flattened it, we've twisted it, We've turned it into untruth. I know that can be really un unsettling for those of us who have been told that the Bible is our foundation for our faith. But I'll tell you something. I love the Bible. I got two podcasts about the Bible. The Bible is not the foundation of my faith. Jesus Christ is the foundation of my faith. Love is the foundation of my faith. And if love if relationship with the divine is not the foundation of our faith, we will commit serious acts of evil. And we have, and people do, trying to be more faithful to their interpretation of the text to than, to, than to the inner knowledge of love, of God, of relationship, of basic human decency. The Bible is a set of directions towards the destination of God who is love. But the directions have been given to us in multiple languages we don't speak, from literally thousands of different perspectives, across cultures who got a bunch of stuff wrong. The directions are confusing and contradictory, and I'll just say it, some of it's wrong. But thank God, the directions are not the point. They're not the destination, they're our resource. They're a resource I love. They're a resource that actually shows us how to challenge it. They're a resource that is trying to point towards how deeply loved we are. Because if love is the destination, if God who is love is where we are going, what we are searching for, then our experiences of love is also revelation. We talk about the Bible, it is the revelation of God. We talk about Jesus, it is the revel God, Jesus is the revelation of God here on earth. So is the love in your life. If the book points toward God, the ultimate embodiment of love, then all forms of true love point to God even more clearly. And I say true because so much, so much hate has been twisted and called love. The protesters on the streets call what they do love. I get it. Love is not an uncontested, uncomplicated word either. But you know the difference between love and unlove. You know it. You know it because you were made in love. You know it because it's the core of your being. And at your best, at your most undistracted, at your most present, your most attentive, most aware self, absolutely knows what is love and what isn't. You are capable of self-reflecting, looking at your actions, your relationships, your life, and discerning this part was loving, this part not so much. I've got work to do there. And so, 
This idea of your sexuality, your love, your relationships, the relationships of those you love as sin, it misses the mark. Love is holy. Harm, dominance, exploitation, abuse is evil. Are queer people sinful? Sometimes. Are straight people sinful? Yeah. (laughs) Right? Like, these are the truths that we live in. But determining what is true in our relationships, being able to stand in our loving relationships with confidence, that comes from knowing the love that made us, that knit us together, that pours through us in our very breath. Where there is love in your life, there is the truth of God. And it is blessedly less complicated than anything written in the scriptures. Some of you know that I'm a little in love. (laughs) I am madly in love with my partner. Cameron is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And I will try to contain myself a little bit when I just tell you the true thing that Cameron has taught me more about the love of God than any book of the Bible. Because feeling loved and expressing love is the holiest act of my life. And luckily there have been many and different forms of love in my life as I hope there are in yours. But for someone to look me in the face and say that my queer marriage is sinful, I can't help but laugh. Because they don't know. They don't know how holy it is. They don't know how much more God I know because of the love that I feel in my marriage. And after I laugh, I I sigh, I shudder, sometimes I cry about it. Because it's actually really sad. And What we need is a world that can be more attentive to, more attuned to what love is. True love, gay love, queer love, straight love. True love is a greater revelation of God than any scripture ever written. And we need to trust one another in that. You are loved, you are capable of love, you are made from love, and you are made for love. And you are never alone in that. Because love is here, God is here, rooting for you, on the side of love itself. And this is what the scriptures mean. This is what it means. Someone tried to describe that feeling by writing in the voice of God themselves. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, offspring of Abraham, whom I love, you whom I took from the ends of the earth, called from its furthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I choose you. I didn't reject you. Do not fear, because I am your God. I am with you. Do not be afraid. I will strengthen you. I will surely help you. I will hold you in my righteous, strong hand. All who rage against you will be shamed and disgraced. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You'll look for your opponents and you won't find them. Those who fight you will be of no account and will die. I am the Lord your God who grasps your strong hand, who says to you, don't fear.
I will help you. This is a declaration of love. This is one person's best attempt to describe what it feels like to be loved by the God of the universe. Now, I know you want to be able to get the, just that right argument to convince those protesters, to convince the voices in your life, the voices in your head. You won't find one. That's not what it's about. There's a community organizing teaching that says we don't think ourselves into new ways of acting. We act ourselves into new ways of thinking. You who are on the side of love, who recognize the holiness of queerness, got there not because somebody gave you a really airtight intellectual argument, but because you felt it in your body. You felt the truth of that love. And you said, this is holy. And then you went looking for answers as to why and how. But you knew it first, because you were in relationship with love, whether it was your own queer love or queer love in your life. Act in love. Act for love. And the closer you are to love in your life, the easier it is to spot when something is loving and when something is not. There were 25 of them here yesterday. There were 250 of us. Now that doesn't mean that the loudest side is always right, but yesterday it was. <laughs> there were hundreds of people at the ready to defend you, to defend people you love, from the lies of confused folks who've manipulated an ancient text, who've abused the power of the church to maintain their own authority. Our job is to proclaim the truth of God. You are loved, held in eternal relationship with the divine. You are made from love. You are made for love. Your love is holy in all its forms. Take care not to exploit one another, to empty yourself of the world's powers, to become vulnerable and equal in love. And when you do that, the holiness of God shines through you in ways that are indisputable. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, it is hard to know in our heads what you have taught us in the depths of our being, that we are beloved, that we are made in your image, gay, straight, queer, trans. God, there are so many lies of the church, but this one we offer up to you today in repentance. God, turn us away from that lie, homosexuality is a sin. God, Take that lie off of our hearts, our bodies, our shoulders. God, free us from its clutches. God, may the truth of your love burn brightly in our relationships, in our communities, in our friendships, in our families. And God, may we have blessed assurance that we are who you say we are, that your love reigns supreme, and that we can and do embody that love. Amen.